Hello and welcome to another episode of Swatch of Horrors podcast. So thank you for tuning in. If you're new, I'm your host, Memes, and I used to be a makeup artist. And although I no longer work in the beauty industry, I still have a lot of horror stories to share with you and so do my guests. If you're a client, you're going to learn what it's like to be on the other side of the chair and hear about some of these horror stories that beauty professionals sometimes have to go through. And if you're a beauty professional, me and my guests will share some lessons that we've learned and some tips and advice on how to navigate some of these difficult situations so that when they happen to you, you'll know what to do. And if you work in the industry, send me a DM at Swatch of Horrors on Instagram because I want to know what horror stories you've been through on the job. Swatch of Horrors. I'm looking for a new repeat for Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. This is episode, I think, six. This is going to be an intro episode about who I am, why I got into makeup, or my past life as a makeup artist, and why I started this podcast. So, welcome. Well, it has been quite a week of lots of fires over here on the West Coast, and air quality is pretty bad, so not really spending a lot of time outside, which is what I really like to do, is to get out and get some fresh air and, you know, walk around a little bit. Can't really do that. I did, however, get my third pedicure outside because nail salons are not able to work indoors yet. Uh, Personally, I do feel more comfortable right now being outside just because uh, from, you know, from what they're saying from a COVID-19 standpoint, it's best to not be in enclosed spaces. That's just my preference in like what I feel comfortable with right now. So And it wasn't too bad. It's not the most luxurious experience, but I'm okay with that. I have some, like, I don't know if it's like an ingrown toe. I've already talked about this. I think it's just the skin around my nail that just gets really uncomfortable and stuff like that. And I just need somebody to just fix my feet and I'll be good. That's really why I really like to get my pedicure. So I'm okay without the massage chairs and whatnot. I do get that it's super difficult and just not the ideal environment for nail techs to be in. And I get it and I feel really bad. So I feel like the least I can do is go and see them when I can, especially being outside. I feel there's less, it's less risky for me and I'm comfortable with the the lower level risk right now of being outside and the salon that I found is taking a lot of precautions. There's like a plexiglass in front of you and the artist, they wipe down the chair after each person. They take your temperature, they make you sanitize your hands. Um, I feel like it's really well done where I've been going despite being outside 
and uh, breathing in um, moderately unhealthy air. But at the same time, you know, just really want to support the artists out there if I can. Aside from that, I've been just trying to, and I know this isn't a food blog or a food podcast at all, but I really love food. This is part of who I am. I can even give you an example of how far me and food go back, back to my childhood. I'll give you a little taste of that in a minute, but I've been trying to perfect a salsa roja. And I've been looking at so many different YouTube videos, and I think I finally got it. And unfortunately, I'm using a blender. I'm not using a, a mocajete because I don't have one. And I feel like if I get one, it's just another big thing to take up space. So I've been playing around with different techniques, different chilies. And my problem now is that it's not as spicy as I want it. So I don't know, going on kind of a salsa food adventure right there. I think I'm finally done with my ice cream phase for a while, and that's, that probably won't kick up for another few months, so kind of done with ice cream, I think. I think I've had enough of that. I'm kind of going back to trying to cook more at home lately, so just trying to feel more healthier, eat better, feel better, you know, that type of thing. So... This episode is just to give you a little bit of an introduction as to who I am, why I started this podcast, and, you know, all that good stuff. So, I'm Memes. I used to be a makeup artist for a handful of years, and I really liked it. I worked in the retail space, and I did some freelancing. I wasn't too heavily involved in freelancing, but I did do some of that. I was a makeup artist throughout my time in college. So just to take it way, way back, just a little bit more to tell you kind of a little bit about my roots, my paternal side. So my dad's family, my dad came from Vietnam with his siblings, his mom, his dad. They came over in, I think, 82, 1982, more or less. They literally fled Vietnam in a boat. And I can't imagine how rough that was. Um, Let me know if in the comments on Instagram, if your parents have experienced something similar. Okay, so you know how earlier I mentioned how I had this love for food that goes all the way back to my childhood? Well, in Vietnamese culture, there is a one-year-old celebration. There's a celebration for kids who turn one, and that is called Thoi Noi. So if you Google it, it's T-H-O-I second word is N-O-I. What they typically do at this celebration, they present the child with a tray filled with tools or things that would reflect, things that would represent a future career or a future skill that the kid would have. So for example, there would be like a pen, a book, a hammer, some food, and whatever the kid picks is supposed to foreshadow the skills or the profession that the kid will grow up to become. So when they set the tray in front of me, apparently I picked, uh, my dad's mom made some soy, uh, which is spelled X-O-I, soy dao san, 
which is like a sticky rice dessert with this kind of yellow bean. And that was the first thing I picked and I ate it. And I remember my, my mom was telling me the story that I picked the food item right away. It was the first thing I grabbed and my grandma was like not really happy with that. So I don't know if that was just it was supposed to predict that I would become a chef or maybe I would just love food too much and I don't think my grandma was like happy with that I guess so she was like no pick another one so they tried to get me to pick something else I guess and that kind of I guess goes back to show you how much I've always loved food ever since I was a kid on my mother's side I think I would say maybe third or fourth generation Mexican. I my roots back to um, Zacatecas, uh, Durango, Chihuahua in Mexico. But I was also actually able to find some records, uh, like baptismal records, marriage records, that kind of backs a lot of that. So that was kind of interesting. I got super into that uh, a few years ago, and it just was my thing for a little while. So that was kind of a cool thing to research. I don't know much after that really. So uh, my grandparents were born in the United States, but I think my great grandparents were uh, born in Mexico. They were migrant fruit pickers and they would go from, you know, season to season, different farms to different farms and camp out in tents and pick fruit for a living. And so during the time my grandfather was growing up in the United States, there was a lot of discrimination against Mexicans. It was my understanding that they would get made fun of for certain things that they would eat at school. Uh, They would get made fun of for speaking in Spanish. So I think that's kind of why my grandparents on my maternal side didn't pass down the Spanish language to my mom and her siblings. Unfortunately, I didn't get to learn Spanish in that way. But I did grow up in a predominantly Latino neighborhood, and I think culturally I absorbed a lot of the Mexican culture through my friends, and some of it through my mom's side as well. I never had a quinceanera or anything. I really did want one, but I probably actually know more Spanish than my mom does, actually. So the exposure to the Mexican culture was predominantly through my friends, from elementary school all the way through high school and some through my grandparents. For the most part, that side of the family was very Americanized. I did pick up some Spanish words from my grandparents and it was very kind of slang Spanish, not really anything formal. So that was kind of my upbringing with the Mexican-American experience. I got to uh, learn more Spanish through my friends and through high school and then later in college. And so I would say I have like an elementary conversational knowledge of Spanish. As for my Vietnamese side, I think I was in the household. I was kind of raised predominantly with the Vietnamese culture I do know more Vietnamese than I do know how to speak Spanish, Um, but that's something I'm constantly trying to improve. I really want to fully claim trilingual, but with time, it's never too late. I do like to watch some Spanish-speaking novelas on Netflix. 
and on TV, wherever they have them. Definitely a guilty pleasure. But one of my favorite ones to watch is uh, La Rosa de Guadalupe. And I like that one because it's super cheesy and they're just bite-sized episodes. Each episode is a different story. So I like that I don't need to watch a whole season to really know what's going on. So that's kind of like my go-to for bite-sized novella drama. I never struggled with how I saw myself in terms of cultural identity, even though the way I was brought up was predominantly in a Vietnamese kind of culture. But what I think I did struggle with and still kind of do is how others see me and perceive me. Kind of what categories do others put me in? And I think that does have an effect on me. For example, I mean, I don't have any pictures of myself uh, on social media for the podcast or anything. And it's kind of, I kind of want to keep it that way for now. It's just what I'm more comfortable with. But depending on who you ask, in my experience, it feels like most people have identified me as Asian because I look more Asian. And like I said, some people will say the complete opposite. Some people will say, no, you look Mexican. I had no idea you were Vietnamese. So it really depends on who you ask. And what I've noticed, and you know, this is just a general observation. People who are Asian or Vietnamese, when they see me, they usually think that I'm Mexican or Filipino. But when other Latinx people see me, they just think I'm 100% Asian. A lot of times I feel like I am constantly trying to justify my Mexican heritage or like amplify it more because I think I was always trying to make up for the fact that my Mexican side was ignored by other people based off of my looks. A lot of kids bullied me in elementary school. They would say mean things about Asian stereotypes. It it was never, I was never bullied for my Mexican side because they just, kids didn't see me as that. I think the interesting thing is, you know, if I pronounce something in Spanish, they'll say, oh, your pronunciation's good. And part of me is kind of like, well, why wouldn't it be? Like, I... I'm not fluent, but I've been around it enough and I that is part of my heritage. So it's interesting how others categorize me. And that has another layer to it as well, which relates to retail. When I worked in retail and cosmetics, in retrospect, I start to wonder, and it's not that I'm trying to play a race card here, but a lot of times I wonder, was somebody treating me, when a customer was treating me a certain way, if it was shitty or if they there were times where a customer didn't want to work with me and just kept writing me off and wanted to work with someone else who looked completely different than me, you don't know. Like for me, I don't know if it's because of the way I look. Like how do people perceive me? It's like you just never know. But I also do know that because I pass for Asian a lot of times, I definitely know that there's some privilege there and do acknowledge that the way I look has also probably have played in my favor a lot of times. And I just want to say that I do recognize that. I haven't had anyone outright make 
derogatory or racist comments to me directly in recent years. Nothing like what I just saw this influencer go through. There was this influencer, um, her name is Sophia Chang, and I think this story blew up um, because I found out through it through other people. Uh, She was dining at this place in Newport Beach in Orange County, and you can go and look at her Instagram. Uh, This guy completely like verbally assaulted her and her sister and said, go back to Wuhan for no reason. And when they were asking him why did he say that, he was saying, oh, I don't speak Chinese or whatever it is. Um, I have not experienced that level of hate and I can't even imagine what that's like. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge and just bring awareness to, you know, Asian Americans are having a hard time too right now because there's a lot of, especially with the virus, people think that just any Asian they see is, oh, it's, it's, it's our fault because people want to blame Asians on this virus and it's causing a lot of these kind of people are just acting out in horrible ways and you know racism's not okay um i did write a quick blurb on one of my episodes about black lives but i still haven't spoken about it yet so i know i'm just kind of going off on a tangent here but i just want to say that you know, i'm completely 100% anti-racist i'm against systemic racism i believe black lives do matter And the whole argument of all lives matter, blue lives matter, well, you know, I'm just not even going to get into the nitty gritty with that, but people are not born police, police officers. So there's no such thing as blue lives. All lives matter. Okay, well, again, you've seen this over and over again. All lives can't matter until black lives matter. And it's just constant constant, just always on the news, police brutality against black bodies it's just it's just awful and it's not enough to just say you're not a racist you have to be anti-racist we can't allow ourselves to be numb to every event that we start to see on the news and really ask ourselves you know what can we do to help fix this I really think this is going to be the generation to help fix systemic racism. And I think there's small things that we can do. You can do little things. You can buy Black-owned from Black-owned businesses. You can put yourself in other people's shoes and have empathy. You're not a person of color. You know, think of what, what it would be like if you were to see your family member on the news because they've been a victim of police brutality. And and if this doesn't anger you, you know, ask yourself why. I would say ask yourself what are you doing to help amplify voices of, you know, black indigenous people of color. Look at supporting black owned businesses. Go on Yelp, go do a Google search, find out where Black-owned restaurants are and start ordering takeout from them. Instead of buying your next candle from 
the department store or some chain. Look up a Black-owned business that sells candles. I also think another really important thing is to look at who you're surrounding yourself with. Do all your friends look like you? Do all your friends speak the same language? How much in your bubble are you? If your bubble isn't diverse, your group of friends, you know, ask yourself why. Is it where you live? Is it a choice? Are you friends with people you work with? And everyone you work with tends to look like you? That's something to think about. People you went to school with. Maybe you didn't go to school. Maybe you're friends with people that you grew up with in your neighborhood. Diversifying your circle, not like people of color are a commodity that you need to just collect. And I don't mean it that way at all. I mean, look at the different perspectives that you're, you could be missing out on. And we see this a lot with marketing campaigns. Um, for example, I think the latest controversy with Tresemme uh, in South Africa, I think it was. It's an easy Google search, but... You know, with the latest, with marketing scandals, you know, where they, things are tone deaf. If you think about how did a problematic marketing campaign come to fruition? A lot of times, I bet you it's because they didn't reach out for perspective, everybody in the room probably looked like each other and there was no outside perspective of, hey, how is this going to make someone feel? Is this going to offend somebody? Is this offensive? You know, is this anti-Black? Is this anti-POC? Especially in the workplace, I think getting different perspectives is so helpful. And like I said, if you don't have a diverse crowd of friends, ask yourself why. And also, I would say, what are you doing to seek out diversity in a different point of view? And one really, another tip that I think I read from blog or another podcast, start to follow, even on your social media accounts, your Instagram Follow people who don't look like you. Follow people who are completely different religion than you, different skin color, different cultural background, different country. Because once you do that, you'll start to break down your own, your expectation of what the norm is. What you see every day will start to be the norm. If you, you're seeing diversity on your feed, that's going to be normal to you. I encourage you to go on any Instagram, like uh, your favorite makeup brand, your favorite fashion brand, and start to look at the models they use too. start to think about these things. And I think once you're aware of those things, we can start to move forward with ending racism. And do I have all the answers? No. Are all of these things going to solve the problem? No, but I'm a big believer in small changes add up. So hopefully you think about some of these things. Recognize your privileges, whether it be racial, educational, gender, 
whatever privilege that you have, recognize it and use it to help empower those who are marginalized. I know I just went on a tangent there, but it needed to be said. And it's an important, important thing that we all need to recognize. So now let's get into my career as a makeup artist, why I started this podcast, and then the COVID catch-up. I also have a little mini horror story for you at the end. Now to get into what led up to my career as a makeup artist. So I would say back in the recession days like of 2008, 2009, I was kind of in between jobs. I was going to a community college, which there's nothing wrong with that. I just that was just the path that I was taking at the time. A recession hit, so I was out of a job. I was trying to find any sort of job that I could possibly do. And eventually I gained a lot of weight, which has kind of been something that I've struggled with on and off throughout my life. I was never really an overweight kid. I was very athletic. Uh, But as I got older, it was just definitely kind of yo-yo with my weight. And um, and I I think there's just a lot of stress during that time. I did work out um, a lot. I did go to the gym a lot. But I at the same time, I had a really poor diet. I wasn't sleeping very well. I stay up really late. Um, I was trying to find a job and things were just very stressful during this time. So I remember around this time I started watching YouTube videos about makeup tutorials. And this was before all the beauty guru YouTube stuff started. Uh, I would think, I would say the early days of Makeup Geek, that was kind of, she was kind of one of the main ones that was out there on YouTube at the time. And I fell into this beauty blog community, which pretty much no longer exists anymore. But I found a blogging community that talked about reviews, makeup looks, tutorials. It was a very, for the most part, supportive makeup community. And that's where I got into beauty blogging. It didn't last very long. It was about maybe a few years. But what drew me to makeup was I was able to focus on my face and it became like my little escape this place where I can just blog and be part of this community of just people empowering each other, really lifting each other up. So focus on elaborate eyeshadow colors, lip colors, anything to make me feel like attention was being drawn away from my body because I was so insecure about the weight gain. I wanted to get into makeup to do basically become a distraction away from everything else. So that's how I got into makeup. The beauty blogging situation didn't last very long. Uh, It slowly just kind of died out. Around this time, I think I was in my, I was either 19 or 20. I think it was like 19 maybe. I think it was 20, I think. I was so eager to become some sort of makeup artist and get started and build my portfolio that I was even posting Craigslist ads to get out there as a freelance makeup artist. I was advertising for prom and I even had one person inquire about getting their prom makeup done and I was about to go meet up with them and my mom was like, what are you doing? You don't know who this person is. It could be a killer or murderer or, you know, and she kind of talked some sense into me and I think it was a little bit scarier back in the day to meet someone online. So didn't end up going through with it, but that gives you an idea as to 
how much I wanted to get into makeup. And I think people used Craigslist a lot more back in the day, so it was kind of like the main place that you would go to sell something or look for a job or advertise for something at that time. And eventually I, after so many different kind of random jobs here and there that I could get during the recession, I finally landed a job at a freestanding makeup store. It was a place where we sold makeup. We could not be consultants. We weren't makeup artists at all. We just, you know, put the product out, clean the product, put out the testers. So that's where I got my exposure to a lot of beauty products and I started building my collection even more. Got really into that. Really loved it. Eventually I moved out out of state to the Midwest. I transferred schools, did the schooling for a little bit, and I eventually landed a job working at a makeup counter as a makeup artist. And that was one of the highlights of my makeup career was finally getting my foot in the door as a makeup artist at a counter. And I was so happy. So I was a makeup artist in retail while I was in college. And to tell you the truth, I knew I was pursuing a degree and I did this really because it was just in the cards for me. I know that he came here to have a better life and, you know, as a minority and as a, a daughter of an immigrant father and as someone whose parents didn't finish college, I think they had a little bit of college, but uh, being from that background, I just knew that I owed it to myself and to my parents to pursue a college degree. So that's what I was going to do, regardless. I wasn't sure what my career path would be once I got my degree, but since I was a makeup artist while I was in school, I figured, okay, I'll just be really good at my job. I'll do my best. I'll try to work up the rankings and get my foot into management somehow, and maybe that will be my career and having a degree will just be my fallback or just be something that I can hang on to and be proud of. A few years down the line, I realized that I didn't like missing out on holidays. I didn't like working on the weekends so much. And that took away from time that I could have been with my family. I missed out on family gatherings, on a lot of different things because of the demand in retail. Also, physically, it it's pretty harsh on your body, and I can get into this in another episode, but it's a very physically demanding job being a makeup artist, and some people don't realize that. Uh, the floors are typically pretty hard. You have to wear fashionable shoes and clothing, so the shoes that you wear aren't very supportive, and being on hard floors all day, it can start to cause some problems. As I was studying more and more, I realized that I wanted to pursue my degree pursue my career and what I was studying and I'm completely happy with that decision. So even though I have left my job as a makeup artist, I do have a spot for it in my heart, as cheesy as that sounds. I still have a love for it and it is part of who I am and part of my journey. So I learned so much working as a makeup artist in retail. You learn how to manage conflicts with coworkers, with customers, you learn how to work with so many different personalities. You learn how to sell. A lot of people who aren't in the industry 
They don't realize that a lot of makeup artists in retail, they are held accountable for sales goals and bringing the store money. So I had to learn how to sell. I had to learn how to break out of my shell because I naturally, I think I tested on the, I think according to the Meyer Briggs test, I'm technically an extrovert, but I feel like I, I have a lot of like introverted tendencies so naturally chalking it up with people doesn't I don't really think it comes that used to come too naturally for me so being a makeup artist I really learned how to sell I really learned how to adjust my personality to other people's personality not to say that I mean that sounds kind of fake but if you're trying to sell a product you have to kind of mirror off of the person you're servicing sometimes. If they're super high energy, then I had to kind of mirror that. So I did learn a lot in my career as a makeup artist. Super thankful for that. I learned how to train people, uh, how to sell the product. I learned how to train people with product knowledge. I learned how to use product knowledge to increase my sales. A lot of valuable skills there. Why did I want to start this podcast? So the reason why I wanted to start Swatch of Horrors was because so many things, there are so many things that a beauty professional goes through that can be pretty tough. I've had customers yell and scream at me if, as you may have heard in episode four, you know, sometimes you're faced with people who are just out to make you make your interaction a living hell and not to say that my entire career was very dealt with difficult people all the time that's not quite true there was a good amount of great clients that I had and I'm so thankful for them and I've also built friendships with some great clients but There's a side to the cosmetics industry, especially in retail, where it can be just completely tough, depending on the area you're working in, especially if, uh, in my experience, if you work in a very affluent area, people tend to treat you kind of like just like you're just working some lower class job that you're there to wait on somebody, you know, and and sometimes, sometimes I had, I would have to deal with that. I also wanted to start this podcast because I wanted clients to understand a little bit more of what it's like to be the beauty professional, to build more empathy for this person, for the person who's trying to make you feel like your best self and make you feel beautiful and service you. A lot of people who are in the industry love makeup. They love artistry. They love skincare. They love making people feel good about themselves. So I think the more clients can hear of these stories, the more empathy I'm hoping that they will have for these beauty professionals. And it'll just make the experience a lot more pleasant. I also want the beauty professionals who are listening to this podcast to walk away with some tips and tricks on how they can be better at their job. I always like to ask my guests what tips they have for both the artist and the client, just so that everybody has a better overall experience. 
And also some of these stories are just actually pretty funny and I think artists can relate to each other with some of these stories, even though some of them may be really just one-off situations, but I really wanted to build a community off of something very different, which which is horror stories in the beauty industry. Another reason why I wanted to start a podcast was now that you know a little bit more about my roots, my background, I wanted to start a podcast because especially in the beauty podcasting world, you don't really see a lot of minority representation. And that to me was something that I really wanted to bring to the table and to highlight and to really be an inclusive space. And now for my COVID catch up. COVID catch up is a space where I like to talk about how I'm dealing or coping with all of the pandemic situations with COVID-19. I also, if I have a guest, I like to ask my guests what they're doing to cope during this time and share any tips or tricks or anything you could do for your own mental health and well-being because I myself have noticed that I've gone through in and out of phases where I feel okay and then I don't feel okay and then I'm okay again. So I'm not a medical professional, I'm not a therapist at all, but I'm just sharing what has been working for me in hopes that it can help somebody out there as well. For this COVID catch-up, I just want to share that I logged off of my personal Instagram. It has helped me so much. Honestly, my anxiety has been cut in half. My anger, my disappointment, all the negative feelings have been reduced significantly and I don't really miss it too much. Um, I'm able to just take myself away from all the things that are bothering me that I keep seeing on my timeline, on my stories, and it's been helping me a lot. So my advice for the week, stay off social media for a little bit. So I'm just going to give you a little mini beauty horror story for this episode. There was one time where I was ringing up a lady at the register and she had just got some makeup and she wasn't really the warmest person and personally I feel like my hearing is not the best. I don't think it's enough to count it as a disability or anything by any means but I spent a lot of time in concerts and around music so my hearing probably has suffered over the years. I was ringing her up at the register and she said something and I couldn't hear what she was saying. And I said, oh, excuse me, like, as in, pardon me, can you please repeat yourself? And she snapped at me. She goes, I said, blah, 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 whatever she was trying to tell me. And I was so pissed, like the audacity that she had to snap at me like that. And she was on my right side when she was saying this. I was super annoyed that she was yelling at me for no reason because I couldn't hear her. Sorry. And I said, oh, um, sorry, but I'm, I'm kind of hard of hearing on this side. So you're going to have to speak up a little louder. I can't really hear that well. And she goes, oh, oh my God, like total 180. 
Oh my god, I, I am so sorry. My husband has that too. Oh, were you born with it? You know, and she, she like had this whole sympathy for me and <laughs> I wasn't, I, I, I kind of stretched the truth a little bit and I guess I just, it just was just flew out of my mouth. I just wanted her to feel really guilty for yelling at me and it worked. And she was trying to like make this connection between me and her husband and how her husband's hard of hearing too. And I'm like, well, you probably snap at him too. The way he snapped at me for not being able to hear, I'd hate to know what he goes through. So yeah, totally stretched the truth just to make her feel bad. But yeah, it was rude. So that's my mini horror story for this episode. Since the whole episode is really mainly just to kind of give you an introduction about myself. There you go. Thank you for listening to another episode of Swatch of Horrors. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at Swatch of Horrors. And follow, rate, review the podcast. It is currently on major podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, Google. That will help the podcast grow. And also take a screenshot right now of the episode that you're listening to and post it on your Instagram story and tag Swatch of Horrors 